Hello, beautiful people. You are listening to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food and Wine Pro. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, and oh my goodness, my guest today is not just a chef I admire, though that is a huge part of it, too. He is somebody who... Maybe I'll start crying up front. I consider her to be a brother. And I've, I've been a huge uh, friend and fan of you and uh, your family for a long time. Um, it's Isaac Toops, and he is the chef owner of uh, Toops Meadery and uh, Toops South in New Orleans, which I am getting on a plane to head toward uh, tomorrow night. And the author of an incredible, newly IACP-nominated cookbook called Chasing the Gator. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you, Lady Cat. This That's too many compliments all at once, though. I'm going to have to <laughs> call my family to even myself out. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, my goodness. Well, okay, so I'm just going to start out and say a thing that people probably don't necessarily know about either one of us is that while we, like, we're pretty, like, public people and, you know, laugh and dance for camera and stuff. But at a party, you and I are both people who maybe are kind of on the quieter side and like to go and and uh, be the one cooking, making drinks or, or, or something. And there's, there's really kind of a dichotomy. Um, and you, over the course of the time I've known you, when do, I'm try, I've been trying to figure out what year we met. Do you have any reckoning? You, maybe it was right when uh, Tube's Meadery opened. What year was that? That sounds about right. What was what was seven years ago? Because okay. we just made seven years on the dot. That's how bad I am at math. <laughs> it's okay. I'm so sure you could. 2012. I'm sure you're good at restaurant math. <laughs> so, Food costs, yeah. Yeah. Dates, no. So I, it's been a pleasure because I, um, a mutual friend of ours, Poppy Tooker, who is the doyen of a whole lot of uh, cooking stuff in New Orleans, said, you know, there's this young couple who have opened a restaurant restaurant and I want you to go and try their food. And my husband was with me. And not only did we sit down and have a meal that just blew our minds, we walked away with a couple of new friends. And you have since then, it's been such an interesting thing to see you grow from not just one restaurant, but but two. And to see you go on uh, on Top Chef, uh, we were sitting out there, and I saw somebody actually recognized him in the green room from from Top Chef. And to see you going from you know being back there and cooking your food to being a person who I've walked with you through festivals and seeing people, fanboy and fangirl, um, all over you. Can you talk about that switch from go being a person who maybe likes to keep to yourself in some ways and being in the back to being? a person who's on TV a lot and recognized and all of that. Yeah, it's it's awkward at first, but you get real used to it real quick because you don't have a choice. Yeah. And especially if you want to continue in the the TV realm or the public realm, you have to kind of so, – so I kind of put put the face on, if you will. So I'll I'll flip the switch and I can go and be in public at the same time. I would rather be like, taking over a grill at the party right. or in, in the kitchen mixing a drink and fixing something up and having conversation with – Somebody like behind the corner. I'm, I'm with the smokers, you know. I'm not, not even smoking, just <laughs> right. like, to, like to be hidden. But uh, it's something you you get better at. And at first, it's 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 nerve wracking. Yeah. And you you don't know what to do, and you don't know how to act, and you just you get more calm about it. Mm-hmm. In fact, I used to be very nervous just doing things like this. Yeah. And now I'm like, oh, this is with my friend I'm speaking to a microphone. We're fine. Yeah. Do you feel like you have to play a version of yourself? I wouldn't say it's a version of myself. It's it's. It's definitely me. It's always been me, but it's uh, my wife says it's camera presence or public yeah. presence. So I could just kind of turn it up a notch, but yeah. I'm still the same person. I still say the same things. Yeah. Just louder. 
<laughs> I like that because, you know, it's it's been such an interesting thing to watch that evolve. And I remember when you were debating if you were going to go on Top Chef or, or not, because I've had some friends who have been through that process. And for some of them, I, you know, I don't always know it was the best thing. But the thing that made me think that you should do it is because you know who you are as a person and as a chef. And I think I feel like and we can talk sort of unpack this. The thing that really got you through is you remembered that the whole way through. You didn't try to fake it. You uh, you were very confident in the kind of cooking you were doing when you were growing up and eating this food. Did you know that it would be something that you would embrace and seek out and be able to really show off on a show like that? Well, I mean, the show didn't exist, but bring it to the fore in that kind of way. Uh, no, growing up, no, I didn't at all. Not even a little bit, because for me, it was just normal growing up. Yeah. For me, having a, a dichotomy of Cajun cooking, my my mother being a Prairie Cajun, my father being a Coastal Cajun, that was every day for me. Mm -hmm. So shucking oysters on the weekend, boiling crawfish and roasting whole pigs was everyday life. I thought everybody did that. Right. You don't do that? That's, oh, okay, well, well what do you do? So coming coming out in the, in the world and realizing that I did have a unique experience growing up, mm -hmm. like, oh, you want to go to a competition with me doing what I normally do since <laughs> childhood? Oh, shuck all these oysters in, in, in a time like I've been shucking oysters since I was 10. Yeah. I mean, these were big part. Would you have parties or were this just regular gatherings or what was it? Yeah. I mean, it's always, I mean, anytime you go out to eat uh, or anytime you have people over, people just come over. Yeah. Aunts and uncles, grandparents. It's always a communal gathering, whether it's Thanksgiving or the pig roast or you're always at the fish camp or the hunting camp. People just show up and it's almost expected to have a big group instead of a small group. Mm -hmm. So it's it's more, we're more likely to have just random people come over and random people eating. We're all, there's always plenty of food. If you're invited, you bring some food just in case. There's not, mm -hmm. there's always enough though. Yeah. Well, I remember that weekend that I, I got to meet you, we ended up going over uh, for red beans and rice at our friend Pablo's house. And I remember you showed up with these sours that I believe the, the citrus in it was a strange hybrid from... Was that from your dad's? It was. It, there was some particular kind of. I don't remember this. What was this? Oh, it was a tree. I guess we had a lot of this particular well, drink, but it was it was some tree like some uh, trees that had cross pollinated, and but I just remember it as the, as the oh, thing the, of uh, the big the big ponderosa lemons. I guess that's what it was. Yeah, but yeah, must have been those. But it was something that you brought something to the table that I'd never had before. And I, I, I just think it's such a curious thing because there's, there's been a, the way that Cajun food has been represented um, outside of Louisiana to the bigger United States. There's this weird cartoon version of it that, you know, happened a lot with, uh, you know, the cooking Cajun and all this, this kind of stuff. And so there, we didn't have a frame of reference for it necessarily. And it was this kind of almost seen as like humble kind of folksy thing, but the way in which you do it is a, it's a different animal. Can you talk about your, your place is it's not, it's not fine dining, but it, those, those techniques are in place. So how do you, how do you talk about the kind of food you do? Uh, I always like to go back to the uh, foie gras and your flip flops conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, growing up and not growing up, but uh, working in fine dining under chef Emerald. Yeah. Learned, learned a lot of things that are what I wanted to do and a lot of things what I didn't want to do. Like, yeah. I love the attention to detail to food and I love mm -hmm. getting proper ingredients and using, you know, advanced techniques to make the food better. But can we get rid of the fancy garnishes and get rid of the white <laughs> gloves and get rid of the ties? Can we, can we do both? And I mm -hmm. think that's what I'm doing. I always, you know, keep, you know, 
first off, I don't take myself very seriously, but I take my craft and my food yeah, very seriously. And I always thought, why can't we have fine dining quality food in a casual environment? Yeah. And so I literally quite did that. I did exactly what I wanted to do and brought like that attention detail to food and uh, luxuriousness all while wearing flip-flops and a T-shirt <laughs> if you wanted to. Yeah. So it, let's talk about you coming up through Emerald as well, because you, what year did you start with him? That would have been uh, 2000. Okay. And what was your position there? Oh, fry cook. Bottom of the rung. Oh, yeah. Was this your first cooking job? No, this wasn't my first professional cooking job, but it, it might as well have been. I'll, okay. t- I'll tell you that I, I cooked in a couple of little spots in Lafayette, Louisiana, uh, around the town I was from, but I wouldn't necessarily consider those, you know, proper, proper cookery. <laughs> Uh, g- gigs. It, it, it was food, and I definitely learned, you know, definitely got my feet wet and whatnot. But until I started working for Emerald, did I start doing real professional food. And it started off with fried green tomatoes with two color different remoulades and fried calamari at, at Emerald's Delmonico way back in the day. Yeah. So, how did you, you know, how did you start that job? Do you go up and just bring your resume? Do you knock at the doors? Do you know somebody there? How does it happen? Didn't know anybody there. And there's a funny story here. Um, I walk in, and uh, Chef Neil Swidler was the chef at one time, and brought my resume, and I can't imagine what it looked like. It, it probably looked horrible, but he liked the way I talk, and he liked my attitude. I think I was shaking at the time, yeah. so he's like, you're nervous to get this job. That means you, you probably want to work here very much, and he took a chance on me. And about three weeks later, I'm talking with some of the other senior line cooks and talking about how cool it's worked for Sh- Chef Emerald's flagship, and they looked at me like, this isn't the flagship. He's got the flagships on Chapatula Street, and I'm like, he has two restaurants, and they looked at me again. It's like, dude, he's got three in New Orleans alone. <laughs> so the whole time, for at least three, four weeks, I thought I was working at Emeralds. When I'm like, yeah. I know you work at Emeralds Delmonico, dude. <laughs> so you know, still not shabby. Yeah. No, not shabby. Just like standard goofball Cajun boy comes to the big city move. <laughs> I love that. And so he. Not a lot of people know this. Um, I, I think because he. I don't. In, in in one way, he's a very public figure, and in some ways, I think he's been undersung because people outside the region don't necessarily know all the money that he raises for people and also what he put into rebuilding uh, post-Katrina because I think there were some people who stepped in and got the limelight. Um, but he took care of the people who were working for him, and he – can you I, – I love this story. Can you tell what that was like for you? Uh, Chef Ramon has always been known, and me personally known, for taking care of all of his people. Mm-hmm. Uh, before Katrina, w- working for him, you know, he's, you work very hard for him, but he yeah. takes care of you. He pays you very well, and he makes sure you're treated very fairly. So I never had any worries about how it was treated, but especially during and after Katrina would, was when I really fell in love with the man. Um, and he, you know, so the, the big disaster happens, and we all need jobs. He made sure everybody who wanted a job got a job. So I moved to... Uh, Orlando, or Kissimmee, rather, and worked for uh, Emeralds Orlando in mm-hmm. Universal Studios. And uh, we all got checks from his personal banking account. We all ha- He had made sure we all had places to stay. Mm-hmm. We all had jobs, and we all had money to get ourselves started. Yeah. And then when we re- helped reopen Emeralds and Delmonico's and NOLA back open in New Orleans, I had actually came back since I stayed with the company with a raise and a promotion. Wow, yeah. So uh, that was nice. And so he's always been just the number one take care of his people and take care of the people around him. And I don't think that gets sung enough. I think a lot of people see just the the character that he yeah. plays. And not everybody knows him like I know him. Uh, you know, I don't go over his house nowadays and whatnot. 
but uh, we still stay in, in, in contact uh, when we uh, when we need stuff or I need stuff rather. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and he you know rewrote the forward to my book, mm-hmm. which was very thankful of him. So. To this day, he's still very thankful of the things. You know, I worked for him for 10 years, and I'm very thankful for him. Thank yeah. you, Shep. Yeah. It's it's one of those things where I, mentorship, I the more chefs I talk to, the more I want to ask them about the people who molded them, who really saw, maybe saw something in them at the beginning and who really gave a, of themselves. So what was that like, going up through him, working uh, for other people, how were you taught? It's not just about the cooking. It is about teaching people to be better cooks. It's about managing your line cook's divorce and how that is manifesting in the kitchen. It's it's a million moving parts that you probably learned by osmosis. How did you learn that? Uh, trial and error, mostly error. Mm-hmm. Um, I half jokingly say that you know you work in the service industry long enough and. And if you're good, you'll have partial degree in psychology. Yeah. Because some people need a hug and a cigarette, and other people need a foot in their ass. Yeah. And to, and to be yelled at to be able to function. And yes, people go through divorces and whatnot, and substance abuse. And you learn how to deal with all these problems. And you, at the end of it, you come out like, I know exactly what that person needs to to function and to get better. And sometimes it's helping them with their family. Sometimes it's just give them a good cussing in the walk-in. <laughs> but uh, that's that's the trick, and that's another thing I've learned. I've learned from every chef I've ever worked for, and mm-hmm. sometimes that's what not to do. Yeah. I remember being d- d- demeaned and humiliated in front of other people by a chef. I'm like, I will never do that. If I need to be told something, even if I'm do- doing something horribly wrong, I'm going to go to somebody calm and say, you did something horribly wrong. You need to not do this again. You won't have a job here. There's no reason to yell, demean, and cuss overtly. Uh, there's a way to get your message across clear and concise and the worst thing that happens, well, you know, I might just have to let you go. But there's never this reason to just browbeat and humiliate. And I think those days are over, luckily. And I'm trying to help that out myself in my kitchens right now, leading by example. I, yeah. I mean, New Orleans in particular is going through a massive reckoning in the wake of uh, the news about John Besh and a, a few other people throughout the city. And uh, as I've talked to chefs who work in New Orleans, I, I see that, you know, there was the this immediate flinch, like, you know, and this sort of look at what have I done that has that has been a bad thing. And but really proactively a move forward have how have you seen that manifested and how did you see people reckon with with that particular thing and and take a beat and maybe learn from it i think the general uh census around town is uh about goddamn time yeah honestly it's like it's been a long time coming a lot of these things some of these things were surprising to me and some of them weren't yeah uh you know the, the level of the things that uh were going on i didn't know all about but i certainly heard rumors about yeah but rumors you, you never know if they're true or whatnot but i think it's a long time coming i think it should have been happening a long time ago i'm glad it's at least happening now yeah and quite frankly if you if you're accused and uh you're guilty of any of these misbehavings i think you should lose your restaurants and quite frankly be beaten in the street 
Okay. <laughs> that's a, that's pretty far than the beaten industry. I, I did see a parade um, after the fact. Oh, yeah. The Crew de Vue, which if folks aren't familiar, it's one of the Should early... That. <laughs> it's uh it's it's Not it's, safe for work. Yeah, it's, it's one of the uh, early parades in the Mardi Gras um, circuit. And it's dirty. It's filthy. It's the, the first time I was ever in New Orleans happened to be over Crew de Vue. And uh, the, there was a serious reckoning in the uh, the floats that happened and nobody's pulling any punches. And I, I do think that there was a great big reckoning that, uh, you know, some some crumb bums were going to be outed and, and um, there are going to be some shifts in, in things. Um, have you seen with it? So I know that this stuff is happening internally because I, you know, I talked to so many New Orleans chefs who are talking about the changes that they're having when they're talking with their staff. They've maybe instituted some HR um, in, in places, even, you know, the, the now BRG, former restaurant group, like, you know, they've established some pretty hardcore HR and stuff. Um, I know that there's also a lot to do with taking care of your people because customers can be terrible in New Orleans. Um, I'm thinking of one incident in particular, and if you don't want to talk about this, we can cut this out. Um, but where your, your uh, GM or maitre d', Larry, Aunt Larry, who we love. Love Aunt Larry. What, he's a beautiful, fantastic, just good soul of hospitality, was uh, threatened by a table and measures were taken. Can you talk about like protecting people who who work with and for you? And if you don't want to, we can not talk no, about it. No, no, I'll, I'll talk about it okay. because that's the number one way to get yourself 86 out of any of my restaurants. Yeah. Messing with my staff. I used to see it going on at other restaurants I worked at, and it was slid under the table because, oh, customer's always right. The customer's not always right. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know how people get to the point of, oh, I can be abusive to my server because I'm paying money here. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work and that doesn't fly. I've kicked people out myself. In fact, this happened just a couple months ago where a person had uh, put his hands on one of my servers. Oh, no. Not sexually, just, hey, you, and was like, I'm, I'm not having a good time. And I yelled right at the past, right at Meadery. Get your effing hands off my effing service or get out or I'm come around and kick you out myself. You can swear on this podcast, oh, by the swear. way. Oh, I can swear. Oh, fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I remember and I hope it's uh, okay with Larry that I say this, but there was a there was a large table of people who were just being assholes, uh, frankly, and put him up against a wall. I believe, and uh, he, he was telling me the story, and he can take care of himself. He's a, he's a tough man, but you also came out and lent your presence to the situation. And yeah, the doesn't lie. Yeah, and they were, and that would have been a, a very lucrative ticket, and you just booted him. Yeah, it, the food was made already. Money doesn't matter. It's, it's, if abuse comes in, money, I, I don't care. I don't see that. All I see is red. Yeah. And, yeah. and you and even you know me, Cat. I'm a pretty nice guy, but you wouldn't want to turn that switch on. I've seen you pull out the switchblade, <laughs> just, <laughs> just in jest, or when something needs to be cut. But you know, yeah. the, the the there is there is a fierce loyalty. Um, how do you know when to uh, step in if it's not somebody, if it's not a situation that's happening right in front of you where you can go in and be the person who makes that uh, that difference, like right in that moment. But if you suspect that somebody is not doing well, if something's going poorly in their personal life or whatever, how do you step in and have that conversation where, you know, they might may or may not be screwing up at work, but you're, you're, you're worried about the path that they're taking? That's a fine line. Um, and when do you step in? When does somebody need some help? Yeah. And we have a great team. And sometimes you'll notice a person having a bad time. And like maybe maybe I'll go send my manager who's the better friend than myself. 
Mm-hmm. Or may- maybe they need to have a sit down outside the restaurant where they feel more comfortable and I can say, hey, look, everything off the table. You don't have to worry about your job. What's going on? Do mm-hmm. you have a problem? Can I help? Sometimes I can help. Sometimes I can't. Yeah. And that fine line is addressed with every individual person and situation. It's, it's not this blank canvas of like, oh, that person has a problem. Oh, we just hit A and then B and then C. Yeah. It's always going to be different. It's a, right. Psychology. It's always going to be different. And you have to handle each case and just keep their, their well-being in mind. Yeah. You know, I've actually had to let people go that were my friends. That's so hard. That's, and that's so hard because like you're, you're running yourself into either suicide or an addiction problem yeah. and I can't watch it and I tried to help you and maybe this is the wake up you need. And sometimes it is. Sometimes that does help. It's like, oh, my best friend just fired me. I must have some problems going on. Maybe need to reassert myself. And then I've had employees that were younger than me pass away because of their problems yeah. one way or another. That's a really hard thing that I've, you know, talked about with, with a lot of chefs. Like, when do you know, not when it's time to give up, because that's not the right word, but when you can't necessarily do any more, because there, there, there comes a point where they have to take the initiative. And it's so, so hard. I was talking with a chef just last week saying, you're tired. It's four in the morning. You really want to go home. You've because you, you have to get up in a couple of hours and start the whole thing again. And your line cook wants to come and talk to you in the alley or a car, you know, and and just worried about what happens if you don't have that conversation. How do you take care of yourself while you're while you're doing that? And I imagine that's a case by case basis, but it weighs heavily. It weighs heavily on me. It weighs heavily on a lot of people. How do you how do you make that decision of when it's when it's time? Um, that might be one of the, the tougher things you do. And sometimes you have, you have to muddle over it. And, uh, recently I won't name names, but yeah. we had someone in, in some man in our management position, literally bringing everyone down. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that person was bringing themselves down as well. Just this downward spiral spiral, almost lose a bunch of other employees because of this person, I was fed up at the same time, this person wasn't doing anything directly to threaten their job. Yeah. Uh, they were just quite literally being just miserable to everyone. And, and, and my restaurant was suffering because of it. And I was just about to let that person go when that person quit. Okay. <laughs> and then I relief, found out, relief. right. And then I found out that that's what that person needed. That person needed to step away from that management job and take a lower position in another restaurant. Mm-hmm. And I, I found out that that person is doing better now. Oh, that's so, so good. So, so that's good. And again, I've never really had that exact same scenario right. once over. You know, so it's always something different. Yeah, chefs are fixers and they, you know, inherently there's the hospitality of it and you want to take care of everybody else. And you don't always take care of yourselves so well. And there is, uh, I know, I, are you technically a millennial or are you Jenna? No, no. I'm. Oh, I'm what, okay. what do they call that? What is it? A Zenner? So I'm, I'm so born in 1979. Or what, yeah, <laughs> what am I if I'm born in 1979? So, you know, something in there. I grew up pre-internet. <laughs> right. You know, first computer was a Tandy 1000. Oh, right. Okay. I had, I had a like a TRS 80 or something. Like that. Yeah, yeah. Right. So yeah, I would. I, I'm, I'm not a millennial. Okay. I think I'm thinking I'm right before that though. Okay, because I asked this question because Mike Galata, who is a chef well known and and loved, <laughs> to, Good friend of mine. to both of us. Uh, but he he I think is a millennial, and he had referred to, oh, you know, your typical Gen X masochist chef. <laughs> which I have always really liked. Yeah, uh, chefs are are masochists, right? 
Yeah, I don't know what it is. We just like to suffer, or we <laughs> or we think it's our job to suffer. Yeah, we definitely. I definitely grew up in the age where I was told to keep my head down mm-hmm. and go to work. And the more and the harder you work, the better off you'll be. Yeah, and just work, 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 work. That was what my parents taught me how to do, and everybody else around me was like, "No, you you got to put your no-. literally." I was told to put my nose to the grindstone, mm-hmm. or else I would become a ditch digger or a shit scraper was the actual terminology used. Ditch digger and shit scraper. Hey, yeah. they got jobs to do. Those are they got jobs to do. But in, in, <laughs> in my family, it was it was you you work you work, and if you don't do good in school, you're yeah. gonna you're gonna be one of those as well. And I didn't do good at school. Yeah. So that was always kind of in the back of my head. Well. Coming out of high school, having just a horrible time in high school with yeah. grades and experience, I'm like, oh, well, that's that's it for me. That's my life. I, I can't do anything now. And it wasn't until later on, I'm like, this is not true. Yeah. This is not true. I can still go out and do pretty much whatever I want mm-hmm. and go back and get education or if I wanted to, or, oh, now I'm a chef now and decently popular and decently <laughs> well off. And uh, I just want to say kind of the, to the young ones out there, let's know if you're having a bad time in high school, don't worry about it. Oh, Jesus Christ. Let's talk about that because you and I were both bullied in high school to the point where, you know, for, for me, I was, and I'll probably say it, like borderline suicidal at, at times. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a miracle that I got past that point. And I, I think I did by, I was lucky enough to have, you know, it identified like pretty early on that, hey, this kid, she, you know, she's not sick in these other ways. She's depressed and needs therapy and, and all of this. And I, I came back into school just not giving a shit what anybody uh, thought about me. I was lonely as hell. But, you know, for your experience with that, did you go inside yourself? Like, how did you how did you cope at the time? How did you get through? Uh, not very well, and it's a pretty sensitive subject, but I don't mind talking about it okay. because I think it needs to be told. Yeah. And the one thing that always people, the first thing some ignorant jerk says back to me is like, why didn't you fight back? Oh, Jesus. And I did fight back, but my problem was my bullies were a group of them. So yeah. when I fought back, I would actually be bullied even more. Yeah. So I learned to just ignore it and, and take it on the chin, sometimes quite literally. Yeah. And that evolved at me to be just letting myself be abused throughout my entire high school career. Yeah. Uh, and that's another reason why I had just a terrible time. And it took me leaving my hometown mm-hmm. and going to New Orleans. And it was, it was almost like night and day. It was a switch yeah. that I said, I am not going to be bullied anymore. And I became the person who I am today, the uh, big ball throw you up against the wall and shanky, if necessary, Cajun, Cajun guy who's actually pretty sweet on yeah. the inside. Yeah. But but if necessary, and, and I've had people try to bully me nowadays, and, and now it's... Now it's easy. Now it's you, you're gonna get cussed and you can get the, the knuckles if, if you have to. But I haven't actually had to punch anybody in years. So that's really good. And have any of these people uh, I have had a bully express regret and apology? Um, have you had any of these people come back to you and try to buddy up now that you're famous? Or oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. The long memory, mm-hmm. like an elephant up in here. Yeah, exactly. Oh hey man, 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 man like. I hate you. I've actually told it to someone. It's like, <laughs> I was never your friend. I hate you. That's yeah. okay. Good. And that felt great. Oh, that had to feel. So, that felt great. You know, they say living well is the best for. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, oh, it's but. it's great. I had someone who tr- treat me pretty bad at a, uh, at a at a work environment back when he was a famous chef in, in hometown. Yeah, and he didn't realize that he was you know verbally abusing me until I got 
famous again. He comes like, hey, and then nowadays he's like, hey, we're hometown buddies. You want to do something? Like, you don't remember treating <laughs> me like shit. I know you don't because you're an asshole. Yeah. And I just refuse to work with him. Yeah. And he still doesn't know why. And I'm in the back of my head, I'm just going, <laughs> I mean, I really, I do. I'm, I'm not petty, but I, I do remember this that there are a few chefs who will never be on this podcast because right. I, I remember how, uh, how they treated me at various points, sir. Yeah. Uh, is that being Petty Crocker? <laughs> I like that. that I one. like that very much. But this probably also influenced how you are as a leader because you've you've seen some of those bully kitchens mm-hmm. and you know, so how do you see that if, if you if you see that in another kitchen or if you see somebody with those tendencies who gets hired at your place and maybe they have some bad stuff to undo, how do you do that in the moment? How do you how do you train people out of it? Or do you speak to somebody if you see somebody like at a festival who's not being cool to their team? Like, how, do you do you say something? Uh, I'll say something to the individual. It's like um, I, I see it a lot. And sometimes you go to other people's restaurants to do yeah. a gig or whatnot or maybe just prepping in there and you see this abuse i'll go up to them maybe in the alley maybe in the walk-in like hey not every kitchen's like this yeah you, like you, to the person could, being bullied yeah you you can move on and you know just give your two weeks you know don't just up and quit but it's not like this everywhere else and people and the one thing people always point back to after they've read marco pierre white's book oh, devil in the kitchen it's like oh that's what we're supposed to do we're supposed mm-hmm. to slam and yell mm-hmm. like those days are over and and for good reason yeah you know you don't have to yell and you don't something and you don't have to belittle yeah it's it, it doesn't have a place in modern environment in fact it never really had a place i'm not sure how it got there but this this whole military my way or the highway mentality is is poison it's poison to work environment well, you know, Kwame has, has talked recently, Kwame Onwachi, who you were on his uh, season of Top Chef with. And That's my boy. He's such a fantastic gentleman, and he has talked pretty much about how an abusive past has informed who he is as a person. Um, but he's sort of talked about the notion of, like, you have to pay your dues, and that can, about pushing back against that. And I can see it in, in some ways that, like, yes, you have to come up through a kitchen, but you don't have to be broken down to a cellular level for for that to happen so you do think that that's changing yeah i mean and paying your dues i've never really liked that phrase even though there's some truth in it Mm -hmm. i do believe you have to spend a couple years in a professional kitchen Mm -hmm. not getting abused but working and learning how to deal with people and learning how to actually cook and learning organizational skills and how to do things properly and that takes years of just hands-on environment so pay your dues that way yes but paying your dues doesn't have to mean being abused yeah I'm thinking of that opening, was it Fame, the show where they're talking about, like, all the dues you have to pay, you're going to pay it in sweat. I wish I could remember the whole monologue. I used to be able to to do it. And I do agree that you have to put sweat in there and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, you see it. You see the people who cower when the chef comes near them, and you can tell that. It's funny. I actually interviewed Marco Pierre White years and years ago and uh, went through this whole thing. And then later he bit me, which was really very... like. Yeah, bit no, you? It, yeah. Just... It, it wasn't super hard. There was another chef who actually bit me and bruised me, but it was just such a weird thing, you know. And and it was like he had mellowed some, but I, you know, it, it's it's a funny thing to see sort of where what he has uh, turned into after all that. He's like sort of Mister Peaceful. I live in the you know in the cottage now, right? <laughs> kind of kind of thing. But it really did perpetrate this cycle of of people thinking, you know, they see this beautiful picture of him with the cheekbones and the cigarette mm-hmm. and, the, and the long hair and stuff. And that was an image of what a chef looks like for a long time. Who did you have in your head 
growing up is, you know, what a chef could be or what this possibility could be. I mean, I know there wasn't as much food TV, but what did you think of when you thought of chef growing up? I, you see, I, I thought of um, Jacques Pepin. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, and, and, and Julia Childs, you know, Julia Childs wasn't, you know, chef proper in, in, in being a chef of a restaurant, but I always looked at Jacques Pepin and uh, Hubert Keller. Oh, and yeah. Like, I, 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 like, I just... Well, I'm going to speak in a, in a French accent, and I'm oh. you know I'm French, Cajun French, but I don't speak <laughs> France. C'est bon. Ouais. Um, but I always says like, yeah, I want to be the, the calm, laid back, mm-hmm. you know, easygoing, move nice and, 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 and <laughs> articulated when you have to move lightning fast in actuality. But mm-hmm. that whole being calm and being loving and wanting my staff to love me mm-hmm. and wanting my customers to love me, that's yeah. what I wanted. Yeah. I, I wanted to be the... Hey, I'm just a chef. We're gonna cook some food. <laughs> Let's have some fun. Yeah, type of guy. I, you know, because like, that's how I want to live. Yeah, I want to live having a good time. And it's how you do live. I, you know, I've I've had the pleasure of your friendship for some years, and you you've been to uh, our place upstate in in New York. I've gotten to see you dance and mm-hmm. sing and uh, lay under the stars, singing "Baby Got Back." <laughs> <laughs> good times. Yeah, Sharon's pig, uh, the pig and Sharon's. Yeah, so this lovely man uh, for my husband's fiftieth birthday. Um, Built a uh, Cajun microwave, was you call it, or was or just built the? We just kind of built a spit, yeah, and, uh, in and, the yard, and, and straight up with some cinder blocks and some charcoal and some wood and some rebar and some rabbit fence, yeah, and encapsulated a pig in this and just kind of turned it by hand and cooked it, having a great time. It was it was such a lovely experience too for for my husband because he got to go to like a farm supply store and. Uh, you know, buy all the stuff for it and feel like very, very manly yeah. in in this uh, particular way. And said you you extra cranked up the Cajun <laughs> when you were looking for uh, cyclone fencing, was it? Or yeah, well, um, when you're around farmer type people, farmer type people tend to associate more with with my Cajun roots. So <laughs> you turn the Cajun accent up and let them know, hey, I'm from the farm too, bruh. <laughs> Always kind of helps mellow things out. They, they're not dealing with some, you know, uh, city boy. My, It's so funny because my husband is indeed a city boy, but he also is, is a southerner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's funny. He sort of walks in there and like, you know, he, uh, we, we both stick out <laughs> there. Like I spend a lot of time with farmers and consider, you know, a bunch of my friends and we live in this, you know, farming place up there, but it was just such a funny thing. And it was such a great experience for him to be able to, you know, go and buy cinder blocks mm-hmm. and, and all the stuff and have this pig. But I saw you, um, you know, you, the party was sort of across the street some, and you were just there and you looked so in your element and so happy, just like at one with this pig, maybe a glass of rosé in your hand or, mm-hmm. or something, but, but really just, is, is that when you're calm? When are you calm? Yeah. You know, um, just kind of like we talked about this earlier, like at the party, I, I don't want to be the center of attention. I want to be on the stove. Yeah. And I'm like, if I could, if I could cook for someone and have conversation around that, where I know what I'm talking about, instead of just like being the life of the party, I, I'd rather take over the grill. I'd rather be cooking the pig, mm-hmm. especially with a smaller group of individuals who all have the kind of the same mindset. I mean, we had dancers and choreographers, <laughs> and, and uh, you had and Douglas and Jennifer was there, writers and the uh, yeah. restaurant tour there. We we had 
different people from all different backgrounds, but we all had the same mentality. Yeah. And, and easy going. And it was some people who were just getting to know each other. But I always say at a party, um, I was our, we have a wonderful mutual friend, John Winterman. And I, the, one of the first things I noticed about him was that if you get up from the table, like if you're just at each other's houses or whatever, he folds your napkin. And so like, and I always think like they're at a party. It's a good mix of napkin folders and then some people who just want to sit back into being taken care of. And that was a rare instance where he was happy to just sit back and be taken care of. But <laughs> other people bustling around who want a job, it's it's such an interesting you know, kind, kind of mix to see that. Yeah, John can't turn it off, Winterman. Love that guy. <laughs> Actually, uh, yeah, I will tell a tale on him because he will be on the podcast and people will know him. Um, he usually will not dance and I um, actually got him to dance That's last weekend awesome. by fe- feeding him some cherry bounce. So <laughs> when y'all see uh, the silver fox on this podcast, you will understand what what it means that we uh, got that man to dance. So I want to, um, so you were calm when, you, when you're doing that and a thing that uh, I love many, many things about you. And one of my favorite things about you is your wife, Amanda, who is one of my best friends and your two young daughters. And, you know, everybody asks like, you know, female chefs and stuff like how, how do you do it with the kids and stuff like that? You are a tremendously devoted dad and husband and just family man in general. You also are a person who has two restaurants and you are on TV. Uh, you were on a competition show where you had to be away for a long time and you are on uh, you know, some shows that will be airing some more. Um, that's so much. How do you make that time to be present for, for your family, for yourself? How do you carve that out? Uh, you have to make some sacrifices, and uh, some of that is, you know, sacrificing some personal time. Yeah. So my, my personal, I don't have a lot of hobbies, and you know, we don't take a lot of vacations. Uh, but you know, in order if you want to hang around with your family and have successful restaurants, you have to, you have to do both. So if I'm not at my restaurants, I'm home with my family. Um, I've had to give up certain hobbies and give up certain uh, things to do. You know, I don't get to go to as many crawfish boils or mm-hmm. as many pig roasts nowadays, and don't get to hunt and fish a whole lot. Uh, and that's okay because I'm successful uh, in, as far as restaurants go. And my children know my name and want me to come <laughs> home more. And I still yeah. get date night with my wife. Yeah. So you have to sacrifice some personal things in order to have the things that mean the most. You have to prioritize. Yeah. You know, I had to, so I don't go to the gym anymore, but I picked up acoustic guitar. Oh. Because I could pick that up and play for five minutes instead of going to the gym for an hour and some change. So you, you, you trade off. You trade off. Oh, I didn't know you had done that. That's such just a... just recently. I am terrible. Oh, but I'm yeah. having but I'm having a great time being terrible. Same with with uh, Douglas, my husband. Like he he's so he's fantastic. He, he composed the theme song to this. He's he's a musician nice. and yeah, it, like does all of these things. But I bought him. Uh, guitar lessons a few years back because I knew that I was going to be embarking on writing my book. I wasn't going to, you know, I was doing this creative project. I wasn't going to have as much time at home and I wanted him to feel like his creative soul was being fed. So I got him uh, guitar classes. He's like, I'm going to suck. I'm like, that's okay. That is really fine. He bought a beautiful guitar in New Orleans when we were there. He named it Lucretia. Nice. (laughs) And it is a, a lovely, lovely thing. And I think giving himself permission to not be great at something was really freeing so what are you playing on your guitar are you teaching yourself you I'm, youtube videos I'm teaching myself youtube is great for learning how to <laughs> the, the internet's great for just learning how to like you can straight up type in easy blues songs to play tab guitar and <laughs> 50 songs will come up so i'm playing a lot of lou reed right now oh uh bob marley 
uh, Beatles are great to start with. Oh, yeah. The Beatles are, are pretty easy going, but sound very good. Uh, old Johnny Cash is great. Oh. Because it's, yeah, so Johnny Cash, Lou Reed, and Beatles. Yeah, and I'm picturing for some of these, so your little daughters, Poppy and Ivy, how old are they? Uh, Poppy has uh, just turned eight, and um, Ivy will be five here pretty shortly. That is, So will they be able to pick up an instrument and play along with Daddy? I bought Poppy her first ukulele last month. Oh, my goodness. Because she saw, saw me playing. She wanted to play guitar, but she can barely get her arms around mm-hmm. it. Uh, so I'm like, wait a minute. Hold on. And so uh, we're working on the theme to Peg Plus Cat, which is a, a ukulele-themed kid show. <laughs> and she loves to hear that. Like, that's ukulele. And we're trying to, and I'm trying to teach. And, I, and I'm terrible. So I'm trying to teach her. So, but we're having fun. And we just kind of strum along, not doing anything. And it's a great little uh, you know, one-on-one time with her. Yeah, what's Amanda doing during this? Uh, rolling her eyes, watching uh, RuPaul's Drag Race in the other room <laughs> with I, Ivy. I enjoyed texting with her during, <laughs> during Drag Race. So were you scared to become a dad? Oh, good question. Um, you know, me and Amanda had been together for a, such a long time that we didn't know if children were on the table. And then Poppy just showed up one day. <laughs> just fully formed. And Yeah, oh yeah, just fully formed. And, you know, it was one of those, well, there's no turning back. And that's kind of my mentality, you know, opening up restaurants being on reality television, being a father, I just kind of, I don't get a lot of anxiety about it. I just go into it. Yeah. So I wasn't terribly worried about it. Maybe that's not good. <laughs> like, I'm not worried about it. Like, well, you kind of should be. <laughs> right. Uh, but th- that's kind of my, you know, just like, I'm too dumb to be scared. That's our company motto, by the way. Too dumb to be scared. Really? Because like- we're, like, we're just like, let's go for it. Let's go for it. Let's do it. Second restaurant? Sure. Why not? Yeah. You know? And the restaurant that you opened second, I love it so much. I have such a place in my heart for for Toops Meadery. But South really sneaked in there because there's a lot of vegetables. People are always surprised that a chef who has such a reputation with meat and Toops Meadery is actually really shining on on uh, on on vegetables there. Can you talk about like so you have this really established place. So meatery, shockingly enough, there are gigantic cuts of, of of meat and charcuterie and really good vegetables there too. How did you differentiate what you did at the second place? And was that a, a scary process? It was scary because um, you know you still want to keep the same mentality of my restaurants. You know, casual yet. Uh, food focused, mm-hmm. but we decided to go more the, like the coastal theme of it. So a little more seafood, a little bit lighter fare, maybe even a hair more elegant. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could still get your hedonism on at Tube South. Oh yeah, but uh, have you, done that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we, we wanted to focus just kind of on a, a different approach. You know, Tube's Meadery eight years ago was the person who um, who I was and started. I'm like, I'm a hedonistic chef, and I'm going to throw gut bombs at you and put these big portions, and I want you limping out with the meat sweats. Oh, I I thought I was going to die that's, the first time. <laughs> that's intentional. And then, you know, and then uh, seven, uh, six, seven years later, I'm like, okay, I've kind of grown up a little bit, but I still I, I like the meatery how it is. Now it's time for the, the, the sophomore event, the, the second try. Let's take what I've learned, mm-hmm. and I've always said, you know, uh, if you don't know vegetables, then you, as a chef, you're not worth your salt. Mm-hmm. So people are sometimes surprised, like, oh, these vegetables are so good coming from a meat guy. I'm like, no, these are good vegetables coming from a professional chef who just happens to like meat. Yeah. So I like meat. I like vegetables. But vegetables are always good accompaniments to meat. Yeah. <laughs> and it, seafood. Oh, my gosh. So there. can we dive into this biscuit, this mm-hmm. crab fat biscuit? I will dare to say it's in my 
top three biscuits I've ever had. I can't really eat. That's a big compliment from you, Kat. Oh, I, and I can't really eat biscuits these days because I, I have this this gut condition. And right as I was coming up against the wall of what my limitations were, uh, I made a calculated risk and ate one of the, those biscuits. Um where did this come from? Because I know it's got a sourdough that is pretty uh, righteous. Yeah, it's a sta- sourdough uh, culture from a local farm in Louisiana that's over 100 years old. And so we took the old sourdough biscuit and, and you know the ingredients were dairy. I'm like, wait, well, I want to add buttermilk to them as well because I'm a southern boy. And so we have this interesting combination of sourdough buttermilk biscuits. And it took a while to get them right. Mm-hmm. I mean, as, as anything good does, it's like, how, how do we... Do these these? How do they still make them taste southern and sourdough at the same time? Mm-hmm. And after after many trial and error, more error than <laughs> uh, we finally come up with the right ratio of, of how to knock them out properly. And we keep the starter alive, and we feed her. D- what is her name? Um, you know, we never really named her. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's such a thing. Mine is Bernard for Bernard Clayton. The yeah, I, gu- I guess after two years, we should name her. I just yeah. never thought about that. I'm, I'm not that type of guy. You know, <laughs> the people who name their walk-ins and, you know, or name their knives, I've never really, right. I've never really named them. They're just kind of there. Let Larry or Twee. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that would be lovely. But then talk about the crab fat butter. Now that's, that's a, a whole personal, uh, take a claim on that. Um, I was already in love with crab fat. Uh, from the media, we have crab fat rice. Can you explain crab fat? <laughs> yeah, well, crab fat is a bit of a misnomer. It's actually crab roe from female crabs. Uh, but we learned right away that uh, crab fat, cause, but they are almost pure fat. Mm-hmm. So it technically is crab fat, but it's, it is technically crab roe. So, but crab roe doesn't sell as well as crab fat because mm-hmm. people are silly. <laughs> just, like, just like the com- conversation of uh, what sells better, lemon fish or cobia. Lemon fish sells a lot better than cobia, even though they're the same fish. Right. Because people are silly. So uh, marketing, that was a marketing, why we called it crab fat. Mm-hmm. And I just like crab fat, the way it sounds, I'm fat. Um, and we already had crab fat rice at the other restaurant. We're like, well, I'm still, I'm, I want to make something else with this. So we made crab fat butter. Mm-hmm. And that was just like, oh, well, that was easy. Yeah. And then we, uh, and so far that's taken off and everybody absolutely loves it. Oh. Pe- people will get a weird about it until they taste it. And yeah. when they taste it, like, I get it. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure what to taste going in there, and I just, good God. I, and I, I'll put your biscuits up there with the ones that uh, Kelly Fields. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Kelly, you heard it from Kat, not me. I it's, I mean, and the thing is, like, it all has high esteem from me. <laughs> I, I think once I am able to eat more things, I will do a reclamation tour of uh, of New Orleans where I eat all the biscuits, have all eat the carbs. all the biscuits. <laughs> all of the carbs. It's a really, really good biscuit town. It really, I mean, it's a good town for all different kinds it of things. It is a good town for biscuits. Yeah. So what is the most you dish that is on the menu at either one of your restaurants? Oh, my Lord. Um, the most me. That is a great question. Um, you know what? I'm just going to go with what I was thinking of. Mm-hmm. Go with my gut. I'm going to say cracklins. <gasps> Let's talk about your cracklins. Yeah, because oh it, it, kind of, it kind of fits in all realms of my mentality. It's something old school, yeah. but it's something that my professional teachings also made me make better. Mm. They've been evolving, so I've been eating them as long as you've had meatery. I, just to have people, you, you think you've had a crackling. Until you've had this, it's because it's still got the chew of the meat on mm-hmm. there in addition to the puffed up fat. What is the magic behind this thing? Is this magic? It's science. It's I don't know what the hell you've got in there. 
Swamp dust. <laughs> it's, it's, well, the swamp dust comes later. Swamp dust comes after, and it's it's a really technique driven dish. People think I tell people it's like, oh yeah, I render them down in lard and then I deep fry them, but it's infinitely complicated mm-hmm. in between that. It's it's almost like if you've never made risotto, me calling you over the phone and walking you through it. Yeah. It's not going to come out right. Mm-hmm. So uh, even though I go into detail and chase the gator about how to make these, it's so technique driven that people, chef friends call me up, how do I make them? I said, you're going to have to come over to me and I'm going to have to walk you through them mm-hmm. visually and manually. And I've done that for people before and they're very happy about it. But you're still going to have to go home and refine your technique or go to, the, uh, go to your restaurant and do batches. It might take you six months before you get a consistent batch of cracklings. And that's what it is. It's a slow render down from cold and lard with skin on pork belly. The better the belly, the better the crackling. You render them for about 45 minutes to an hour until the skin starts to dehydrate and pop. Then you have to remove them immediately. If you render them too slow, they'll dry out. You render them too fast, they'll burn. And mm-hmm. I've done both mm-hmm. many of times. And they're cooled down and they're deep fried in peanut oil at 350 degrees and then mealy hit with crack spice. Oh, okay. Which What's is which my personal blend of... Okay. Spices and ingredients. Uh, well, actually, let's have a brief conversation here because the word crack is coming under fire. Mm-hmm. Would you would you be open to renaming? Because <laughs> they, they just changed the um, milk bar crack pie this week and stuff, and it's just one of those discussions. Has anybody talk, uh, confronted you about that? Do they know it's called that or not? Prob- pro- well, we're pr- maybe not. I don't know. I mean, I've got a book called Chasing the Gator, and that's already got a drug reference. Right, right. I'm selling crack spice. You know what the name of my hot sauce is? What? Smoky green. So Smoky green. I'm just drugging... it's, it's, it's damn good. Yeah, yeah so I'm just kind of embracing the, the drug references. We probably should yeah. change it up. <laughs> yeah, it's just... That's what... probably one of those things that's probably coming. Yeah. What are you going to call it? It's, I don't know. It's one of the, you know I saw swamp s- dust. I actually like swamp, that. Uh, I think swamp dust is a is, is a good way to go. There was somebody else who had just changed... It was a big chain, and they changed their uh, ch- crack fries or, or something like that or uh, whatever like that. It was just like one of the things I've just... Couldn't not ask you about that. I, right. I didn't know it was what, but yeah. Because when, we, when we, we invented it, yeah, uh, we wrote it up, it was like crackling spice, and it just kind of shortens to crack spice. Yeah. So it was never it was never referenced it was never a reference to the drug, uh. but yeah, sure. But and that was when you know the early days of the media were like I'm never going to get famous. I'm not going to have to worry about. It. <laughs> I was, it, we never had right. any ideas to even like to bottle it. We still haven't yet. Yeah, but we should probably change. Yeah, that hot sauce too. Like it is so. I've had that hot sauce, and I remember you were asking on Facebook what you should call it, and. Mm-hmm. That's some damn good stuff. But since we're going down that road with this with the smoky green, um, you and I have both dealt with anxiety. Um, actually, people uh, probably can't scoot the camera in enough on that. But uh, and some of you are just listening to this. But if you look at my thumb right now, it looks like hamburger. It's pretty. Oh my lord! I'm a picker. I'm an anxious you picker. You that up, girl. I know. I did the other day, and it's it's not great. Um, and you and I both dealt with anxiety. And for me, it's been a really recent thing that actually talking to you has helped me with i i have a medical marijuana card now and you know so legal in the state of of new york and i know there are all kinds of complications about that and who is allowed to do that and who is imprisoned for it and stuff and it's a you know it's a it's a great big ongoing debate but i you know had to get past a lot of internalized stigma to uh you know see a doctor who recommended this to get approved by the state and then to sort of take that uh, first little bit there. Um, but you had been really open about like using a vape, um, to like deal with, with this stuff. Can you talk a little bit about where you have found relief from anxiety? You have one of the most stressful jobs. Yeah. And for me, anxiety comes in downtime. Anxiety yeah. comes, comes to me when I don't have anything to do. 
or which is pretty rare, or sometimes I've had a lot to do and can't focus on one thing. Yeah, I got the ADHD. Right, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm very heavy ADHD, and uh, marijuana actually really helps me focus in on that. Mm-hmm. So it, it puts me on a project. Oh, I need a project to do. And so mm-hmm. instead of thinking about something, I'm just doing something. Or instead of, oh, I have 10 things to do and then not doing any of them. Yeah. A little bit of the vape actually helps me work. And I know it, it makes other people lazy. It does the inverse for me. Yeah. And most people don't realize, like, wow, you work all the time. How do you smoke? Does it make you lazy? I'm like, I work harder than a lot of people. And it's not the marijuana. Uh, you take a lazy person and give them marijuana, they're still going to be lazy. <laughs> uh, so I, I hate the stigma around that stuff. And sure, there are wackaroons who just smoke all day and don't do anything. But mm-hmm. I smoke a little all day and get a ton of things done. And it just helps me focus up and helps me get rid of anxiety. And at night, especially oh, come home. Oh, that's helped me a lot, yeah. It doesn't help me sleep. It helps other people sleep. But it, what it does help me do is to turn off the work. Yeah. Like, let me turn off the work. Let me pick up the guitar. Let me watch some TV. Let me listen to some music. And I'm able to just let it all go. So yeah. that's what helps me. And you being open about me with this on a on a private level has really helped me a lot because I you know again I grew up with grow up Catholic with a lot of you know stigma around it and stuff and looking at someone like you or a few you know other other friends who've taken that route who you're so high achieving you get all this stuff done made me think like okay I can I can try this and the effect that it's had both for you know my sleep and you know and I take a also a, a, a mine's a ratio of of that and CBD and the the effect that it's had on like the inflammation and the pain has been really a, a, a tremendous uh, thing. Um, you know it, it's it's been an interesting uh, sort of process with that for anxiety for me and if you want to speak to it at all you know as I have gotten gotten further along in my career and maybe more in the public eye and talking about it really, really publicly. I've given myself permission for having an atypical brain where I used to beat myself up and think like, oh, you're a flake, you're lazy or all of this kind of stuff because I just couldn't focus and get things done either because of ADHD or anxiety. And I would just get mad at myself getting a diagnosis and then getting treatment for these because I also take ADHD medication has let me be kinder to myself about it and not just beat myself up for not getting things done. So, I mean, have you, you know, as a person with a, with a brain that does different things maybe than other people, how you seem in the time I've known you, you've come, had more of a sense of peace about you. It seems to me, can you talk about that process? Yeah, it's this whole, um, I, and I used to beat myself up about things I've done in the past and I used to really let my brain just, just double down on that and yeah. beat myself up about you know, things you've done as a child. That you, like, oh yeah, that visit up, you in the night. <laughs> that visit me in the night, and I, I've just kind of learned over the years to go like, screw it. Yeah, screw. It. Why are you thinking about that? Mm-hmm. That's wrong. And I li- I'm literally having this conversation just like that in my head. It's like that's in the past. You can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Learn from that, and then yeah. move on. And that little conversation I repeat to myself a whole bunch every day. It just kind of helps me. It's kind of almost mantra esque. Yeah. It's like, screw it. Y- you're done. That's done. Move on. Look what you've accomplished. Look at where you're at. Learn, you, yeah, you learn something. I say, yeah, you regret that. You shouldn't have done that or whatever, but get over it. Move on. Look at what you're doing. Look at your daughters. Look at your wife. Yeah. Look, look at my businesses. Look at, look at the success I had. Yeah, obviously, you're doing something right, and I kind of got to tell myself that. I'm like, it's yeah. going to be fine. I it's going to be fine. Yeah. I've had to do sort of a lot of talking to younger me and saying, like, you know what, kid? It's okay. It ended up being okay. Like, what would you tell high school Isaac now? Uh, it gets a lot better. Yeah. It gets a lot better, and, and don't worry about it. 
you know, it's it, you, you, high school Isaac would think this, he was at the end of the world, and he yeah. was he was going to be a, a, a low rate, no nothing for the rest of his life in small town Louisiana, doing you know, working a, a whatever job, but that uh, I wish people would have, wish people would not put me down that road of you know yeah. self hate, and that whole you know. It's that high school is not the end all be all. <laughs> There's actually a whole lot of more life than that, and you can you can recreate yourself. If you're having a bad time, you can. Sometimes that's for me that was a physical move. Yeah, it was a physical move to New Orleans, and I just remade myself, and that's the person who I am today. Yeah, note that I do not live in Kentucky anymore. <laughs> uh, I I actually noted the date on the calendar, and it comes up at some point in the next year when I will have been living in New, in New York for half my life. Cool. Yeah, and that the sort of re reclaiming of self or the self you should have been able to have in in the first place. Um, did you find any of that happen through being on reality television? Because that that had to be psychologically, physically, emotionally so so tough going through that, knowing that you were being recorded that whole time. I mean, can you talk a little bit about what it was like being in that that belly and 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 putting the self forward that you wanted immortalized on camera? Because you came out fan favorite, I believe. Uh, the thing for me was, um, you know, I, I have a bit of a. Uh... Uh, what's it called? Camera presence. So yeah, you're, yeah, I, you I, do. I know when the camera's pointed at me, and but the good thing is it's still me. Yeah, me on camera is still me. I just kind of I, I know how to crank up the volume mm-hmm. a little bit. So everything I said on Top Chef and everything mm-hmm. I say on these other shows and whatnot, even here right now. Yeah, I know the camera's here. I know this is being recorded. I know it's but uh, and I know how to articulate myself and what I want to mm-hmm. say, but I don't have to fake it. Right. It is just me. And so, and a lot of other uh, people on, especially on, or not especially, but just on my season, I see people just internalizing and, and getting all gripped up. And I'm so over here chilling out going, <laughs> yeah. you guys don't get it, do you? This is this is a show. Yeah. And so I, I, I caught on real quick when they start, when the producers start to like put you in weird scenarios to make you screw up. I'm like, this is a show. This they're they're doing this on purpose <laughs> to screw with you. So I'm over here, you know, sipping a beer, and everybody else is freaking out about something. I'm like, no, put on a smile, have a good time, don't be an ass, yeah. don't say something that you don't want blared to millions <laughs> of people, and the people didn't catch on, and the people who end up being like the bad guys on on my episode never saw it coming. I saw it coming. Yeah. So uh, you know, so it was just me, and and that's that's you know. That's the good part about me that came out wrong. Um, I think that's great. <laughs> but for but for camera, I, I I can relax on camera. Also, I went to boarding school for a little bit, so like the whole sequestration thing was oh, right see, up my alley. Right, because I hear tales about that the downtime during this when they just have you sitting in the stew room. Mm-hmm. Do you sleep during that time? What do you do during that time? Yeah, because uh, you know they want they want all the reactions on camera. So if mm-hmm. the camera's not on you, they they put you. They say, okay, well, don't talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And so you're just sitting there in silence. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you sometimes you ball up a piece of aluminum foil and play the make it in the cup game or something <laughs> like that. Uh, but yeah, and the other times in the sequestration where they, you know they, you know no cell phones because they don't want you mm-hmm. googling recipes and no TV, and whatnot. And it kind of freaked people out. But I, I'm a very good internalizer, so I can actually have a good time in a dark room, just just playing in my brain. <laughs> Cartoons, so that, like- yeah, yeah. That didn't that didn't bother me. And you know, uh, so I became the uh, the scrounger. 
finding alcohol in nefarious ways and then exchanging it for things. Wait, am I correct in understanding that you wired a TV? Oh, totally. So, <laughs> so, so and yeah, this might piss off the producer now, but ha ha, that's years ago. So they would take away the TVs. Mm -hmm. Well, all they all they did was uh, uh they, they removed the cords. So I found the cords and just basically undid the TV and rewired the TV and got it back on. <laughs> so I had everybody in my room watching TV. Ha ha. Ha ha, ha ha. Oh my goodness. Well, so you had a permanent record of you from that, but also in the form of this beautiful, beautiful book that you co-wrote with um, Jennifer Vashtai Cole, who is one of my favorite humans and really, I think, helped translate your, your voice in this, this way that I, I remember I was sent an early copy of it. And it was like hearing you talk. It's such a a true portrait of who I see you as a cook, as a human, as a, just as, as a person. Can you talk about the process of committing that, of, of really having that coalesce, committing it to paper, deciding how you wanted this, this thing to exist as a tribute to the people who went before you and the people who are going to be picking this up in the future? Uh, well, the process... Ugh, it's that. hard. Books are hard. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't know that going into it. Like like a true rookie. Like, ah, we'll just write a book, right? That, that just that just happens overnight, right? No, it took us three years. Yeah. And, you know, just from inception and uh, meeting with, uh, you know, our publishing agent and then getting Jennifer and then Denny on the project. Yeah, Denny Colbert. Denny oh, Colbert, the photograph. master uh, photographer. And, you know, of course, the great JV JVC, she... She managed to make it inside my brain and then, <laughs> then almost not make it out. She was talking like you for a while. It was she, I know. I know. That's so, so freaky because she would just, because I didn't write a single page. It's all in my voice and I said everything in that book, mm -hmm. but I didn't write a sentence. Yeah. You know, and I and I knew that. And some other people can write and write their own cookbooks. Mm -hmm. I was never going to be that guy and I knew that. Mm -hmm. And that was important. But so Jennifer, we would just sit there and talk for hours and hours and hours. Mm -hmm. And she would just hit a tape recorder and make notes. At the end of it, she actually said she had too much information and need to whittle that down. Because, <laughs> as you know, I can just sit here and ramble all damn day and talk and whatnot. So putting it together, you know, it's like, okay, here's the recipes. Okay, here's the stories. Okay, here's the pictures. And then you give it to Little Brown, our publishing comp company. Publishing agency? Publishing, publishing uh, Publisher. House? Publisher. Thank you. See, glad you're here. here? <laughs> <laughs> give you your publisher, and then you go, well, how did they make a book out of that? And they did, and it was great. So everybody on uh, on Chasing the Gator team was just super professional. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there were hiccups and bumps. I mean, come on. you don't. There do is no book that exists without that. I'm here to tell you. Yeah, and but I'm, at the end result, is something I'm super proud of. And, you know, all the, all the, the, t the blood, sweat, and tears that went into the book are completely worth it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's great. It's up for the IACP award. Yeah, it's for I think first time uh, like f first time author mm -hmm. awards. And it's uh, oh, it's up against Nick Sharma. Nick Sharma and uh, Nas. <laughs> Oh, with uh, the something, the pots. The I'm totally embarrassed that I can't remember it right now. I know, and it's, I, it's did, I, I just did a book festival with her. Yeah, oh. but it's, anyway. it's a really a bottom of the pot. Bottom of the pot. Yeah, it's. A I mean, that is a killer row yeah. of cookbooks who are so I think it's testament to each and every one of you that, that you, you know, in, in such a strong field have you thought about do you do you cook with your kids yes uh, I gave a uh, poppy her first knife when she was seven mm -hmm. and uh, she loves to come in and cut cut up vegetables and help me out with things and cut up the steak and she's mm -hmm. learned to like no it's, it's not a, it's not a chop right here it's a glide and um 
they love to come sit, and sometimes Ivy will just want to. Here's a bowl of chips to crush with a spoon, mm-hmm. and we'll just eat the chips because she just wants something to do. She wants to be part right. of it. They get bored real quick. They're normal kids, <laughs> and they don't always want to eat what I cook, but they're getting better. Right. So they love to come hang out with Daddy, whatever Daddy's doing. They're, they're Daddy's girls. So whatever I'm doing, they want to do. And if they just come cook for five minutes, they'll want to come cook with it. Mm-hmm. And then we all go out to eat. We try different places, and sometimes they'll eat it, and sometimes they won't. Right. So people think, "Oh, your kids must eat great." I'm like. They're standard kids. Yeah, right. They'll eat. They'll eat. They'll eat weird stuff. They'll eat like uh, sushi, but with no soy sauce and not even the rice. They'll just pick up a chunk of raw fish and eat it. I'm like, okay, tomorrow, how about cheeseburgers? Ew, yucky. I'm like, y'all are weird. <laughs> but I bet they're well behaved. Y'all are in weird. Restaurants. Most of the time, yes, actually, uh, there are some pretty well behaved kids. Not to say breakdowns don't happen. We got to go to the car. <laughs> Sometimes it's, it's you doing that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Some t- <laughs> not as often anymore. <laughs> But I know, you know, they're great kids, but they are, you know, they're normal kids, too. You're going to have mm-hmm. breakdowns. You're going to have, I don't want to eat it, get in their heads. And, you know, you know, well, you don't get dessert. Yeah. We'll hold dessert. We'll hold, <laughs> I'll hold dessert and, and birthday parties over your head for everything. Yeah. Well, you now you made a comment about, like, not as much anymore. And I think we've all gone through this process. Like, you know, a lot of us who are sort of within a certain age range have gone through a process where all of a sudden you realize your body isn't as happy with, you know, what you're putting into it. Your brain maybe the next day isn't as happy with it. And I know I've definitely, for, you know, health stuff, like, had to, you know, cut back on, on all kinds of things, including cocktails and stuff, which is hurts me deep inside because I really love a cocktail and stuff. Have you found that you've changed your 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 life, your intake, your any of this like as you have aged? I eat more vegetables nowadays. <laughs> um but I still like my drink. Mm-hmm. Let's not lie to each other, yeah. friends. Um you know, I just drink better quality stuff. <laughs> I don't drink cheap booze anymore. I've, uh, uh, and I and I don't, I don't I don't eat cheap meats, so I eat uh, good stuff in the restaurants, mm-hmm. and I go to nice restaurants, so I eat good quality foods. But I'm still pretty hedonistic with it. Yeah. It, it hadn't hit the body yet. I say that, <laughs> starting to cramp up now. <laughs> right. Oh, here we go. And I, you know, and I think your wife is so killer on wine. Mm-hmm. Like she has an extraordinary depth of wine knowledge. So I know whatever she's going to put into my hand is going to be good stuff. And even if I'm like, you know, keeping it light with alcohol, I know that it's it's worth it to try what Amanda exactly <laughs> gives me. So it's hard not to drink the wine when it's so good. It really is. Well, also, I'm always fascinated by couples who are both in hospitality, and you know, she's had so much to do with the restaurant and stuff. I'm interested in bringing hospitality principles home and how you, you you know me and my husband and our marriage very well I think and we are deeply hospitable to each other in a way that is sort of oh what can I get you what can I do for you like kind of stuff have you taken that what you've learned from having restaurants and brought it home to any principles or is it just kind of a church and state thing? uh no it's because it's we have we have to talk about work at home and we talk about home at work so it's it's one big homogenized project but I will say that we were very lucky to have been together for over 10 years before yeah. we started working together. Me and Amanda both say that if we'd have gotten together and opened up a restaurant at the same time, it would have been disastrous. And that's probably true because mm-hmm. uh, at first we just fighting like cats and dogs. And then, you know, then you get open and you're, then you're after 10 years, you're, ah, we're at peace with each other. I know exactly mm-hmm. what to say, what to do and be very respectful about mm-hmm. this. And then the fighting happened again. We open up a restaurant and now, you know, we still have arguments and whatnot, but we yeah. keep it pretty even keel yeah. and we know not what not to say <laughs> and then yeah. what to say. Right. And then, yeah, we, we take some of those, some of the, some of that mentality of uh, kind of stay in your lane 
a, a bit, you know, uh, something needs to be said to the chefs, I do it. Something needs to be said to Larry, Amanda does it. Not to say Amanda doesn't talk to the chefs and not to say I don't talk to Larry. Mm -hmm. But there's time and place for me to say something and there's time and place for Amanda to say something. Right. So we're, we're, we're two sides of the same coin. Yeah. What have you? What would you say to the Isaac and Amanda who were opening up the meadery that first that that first week? What do you wish somebody had told you? You're a bunch of idiots. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um. Oh man. Of all the of all the lessons uh, that we learned uh, when we first opened. I mean, the 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 menu we first opened is night and day different from what it is now, and that uh, you know, don't let a little bit of failure get you down, Isaac and Amanda. You know, you're gonna fall on your face here pretty soon and hard, and you're gonna have a hurricane messing with your business, and it's gonna look like you're almost gonna shut it down, but you're not. Everything's gonna be okay. It's gonna take some time. Yeah, and you gotta do it together. <laughs> and you gotta do it together. Yeah. So you happen to be in town because you are, are you allowed to talk about what you're filming? I think we could beat around the bush a little bit. I got a little project for uh, Food Network going on right now. Mm -hmm. That's in the kind of the baby stages. Um, you know, it's a bit of a kitchen takeover show. We've the pilot's already been aired. Yeah, but yeah I the love pilot's it. already been aired, so it's not like a secret. Um, and you know, kind of a standard kitchen takeover, but uh, do it my way. So I'm more on the mentor side of things, and trying to find out people who need help running their restaurants. Some of these people have, uh, you know. Big issues, and they get into restaurants because they think it's going to be romantic and whatnot. Oh God, <laughs> the last word I would associate. Yeah, with uh, well, a lot of people say, "Oh, I'm going to open a restaurant. and I'm going to make a lot of money. I'm going to retire." And further truth could be said about. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> Sorry about that. And uh, you know, that's the furthest thing from the truth. You know, don't get into restaurants if you want to retire. <laughs> uh, restaurants are very hard, and uh, some some of these people didn't know that, but they're already in debt because of it, so they straight up need some help. So I'll go in there, and some, just like the the lesson before, some people need a hug, and some people need a foot in their ass. And um, so go in, you help these people, turn them around. Maybe their dining room needs some improvement. Uh, their food always needs some improvement. Their practices and their attitudes need some whipping into shape. And it's good because I can uh, help these people or try to help these people. You can yeah. only push people in so much a direction. Uh, I mean, just like parenting and just like cooks who work and employees who work for me, like I can show you the right way, but you've got to get on the horse and do it yourself after I've shown you. Yeah. And do you find that people have taken the lessons? Have you been back to? Uh, some people have and some people haven't. Oh, when will we, we be able to watch this? Um, that is um, not, not privy to my uh, uh, information right now. I, <laughs> I assume in yeah. the summer. Okay. I, I assume, but uh, you know, it's it's you know, it's a, that's in, it's a network's hand right now. Yeah. So if you see Isaac Toops wandering into your restaurant, <laughs> be very good to them. Yeah, with the camera behind me, worry. <laughs> so, you know, there's something that I like to ask people on this show, and because, and I feel like I, you know, I've seen you in the course of our relationship be there for so many people in different levels your, for your for your family for your customers for the the people who uh work for you um i haven't seen you take a whole lot of isaac time to do things so this is this is something this is the uh i was sort of joke the moment with oprah and the secret they say you know what is the thing that you have to say into the universe the universe can like help you maybe i'm wildly misinterpreting oprah i don't know but um you have to say it 
out loud for people to be able to help you with this. What is the thing you want for you? I want to have an end game. I want to be able to get out of get out of get out of all of this. You know, one of the, I want to have the successful restaurants and them run themselves or me sell them later on. I don't know. The, I don't know. They have the complete answer. And I do TV and I do books because one of these days I want to retire. Yeah. So so I'm, I don't have a lot of Isaac time at all, and it's 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 upsetting. I try not to even think about it. So I don't have a lot of down downtime, and I don't have hobbies, and I don't get to do the things that I love to do anymore. But that's okay as long as one day I can step away and then just be completely done from it all and maybe raise grandbabies and uh, enjoy a retirement job of me just shucking oysters four nights a week. That's my, that's my dream retirement job. I love that. Please, somebody, find yeah. Yeah. this for Isaac. I, w- I want to have a, bar, a small bar and a small oyster bar and just shuck oysters casually four nights a week for a couple of, for a couple of sacks of oysters and just, and just casually shuck oysters into infinity. Oh, hatchet throwing. Hatchet throwing, fishing. Fire, like a fire pit. Yeah. Oh, a fire pit, roasting my own oysters. Juggling. Juggling, all that stuff. <laughs> playing, playing guitar, going to the gym. Maybe along with this, I will share the... Wine and cheese with my wife, you know. Yeah, I, I will share the video of you um, juggling clubs in your backyard while Adele plays. It's a. <laughs> we should do a redo of that, too, because that, that, was, that was pretty awesome off the cuff. People was like, oh, why were you playing Adele? Were you juggling? No, Adele was it, playing and we were juggling. There's it, a big difference here. It was here. specifically Adele's yeah. hello. <laughs> and, that, and that to me was a really magical moment that I felt really lucky to spend with with you and your family. And I felt really taken care of that night. So thank you for that. Oh, we had a great time too. So thank you. <laughs> so we're going into the speed round next. Okay. What is your comfort food? Uh, oh, Lord. Uh, uh Comfort food. Oh, sardines. I have I have a I have a collection of exotic sardines from all over the world. I have sprats from Latvia, kippers from New England, barbecued eel from Japan. Uh, I love any tin uh, oysters from uh, Spain. I have a bunch of tinned seafood that I keep, and my wife makes me eat them in the sunroom, which is not connected <laughs> to the house. <laughs> I actually, when Douglas is out of town, I make myself tinned fish. Yeah, <laughs> maybe you and I need to have a little party. Oh man! Oh, a little tinned fish party. I love that. Yeah, I'll bring some to New Orleans. Uh-huh. I love that. So now I know what to get you when I when I travel. Yes, please. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, what is the last meal you had that made you emotional? Hmm. I was at Margie's Grill having oh, um, of uh, some beef back ribs that were slightly smoked and charred on the outside with fish sauce, and I just had to stop and go, "Good God, it's the best thing I've put in my mouth in a very long time." And I'm just like, wanted to keep eating them, and like, I need to figure out how he does this. So it was like, yeah, Margie's Grill is our date night, so I always get a little oh. emotional there anyway. Yeah, and it's one of the the restaurants that is truly doing something I think unique right now. Can you tell people where that is? Uh, Margie's Grill on Broad Street. In uh, Mid City, New Orleans, uh, get all the meats, get all the seafood. You know what? Get everything. Oh, oh! Make sure you get the sweet potatoes. Best sweet potatoes I've ever had. What are they? They're just he roasts them straight on the coal, so they get caramelized on the outside. Oof. And I'm not a honestly, I'm a bad Southerner when I say I'm not a big sweet potato man, but I love these sweet potatoes. Know them every time, I, and that's saying something. I will get them this weekend. Oh yes, my! Yes, we will. God. Ooh, ooh, double date. Yes. Oh, oh, yes. Marcus, I'm coming. <laughs> Caitlin. Get the wine ready. Yay. Uh, what is the last meal that somebody made for you in their home? Oh, man. I hope it, was, I hope it wasn't that red beans and rice uh, <laughs> all those many years ago. People, I think, get intimidated and don't invite me over. That's why I asked the question. Um, it can be a family member. Uh, 
Oh, Does right. bread toops cook for oh, you? Oh, yeah. And so I go over to my mom's house, and oh, my dad came over, and he, was, he could just come back from the hunt, and he made some wild duck and quail gumbo Oof. that was so good that my kids ate and knew there was little birdies that he shot in them. <laughs> and it was delicious because you can't buy this, and you can't have it in a restaurant because it's truly wild. So unless you shoot them yourself and know someone who shot them, you're not getting wild quail or wild duck. And so he made this, and you straight up have to pick little bones out and mix it with a really dark roux. And the flavor of a wild game is significantly different from tame. And so um, now I'm salivating thinking about my dad's gumbo. <laughs> and so it's, it's a unique flavor that you, you're just not going to get unless you know. Oh, man. I'm trying to think if I've ever cooked for you. I may have over the course of a long weekend upstate. Or... Definitely had, I've definitely I've had snacks dip. in Sharon Springs. I've made dip for you. Yeah. <laughs> this I know. Yeah, we've definitely had a lot of dip. <laughs> and I've made cocktails for you. you made cocktails for me, so that counts. I, 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 count, I count that. Now I really want to have uh, properly cook for you and Amanda. We, we, should, we, we should have a dip and tin seafood party. I am all for this. Many layers. Many layers to that dip. <laughs> what living musician would you want to cook for and what would you cook for them? Living musician Roger Waters. What would you cook for Roger? Because I know you got to see The Who recently. Pink Floyd. Sorry. Oh my golly. Why did I do that? I sorry. Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd. Sorry. Pink Floyd. I grew up uh, listening to Pink Floyd. My dad's a big fan, and you know, you think you grow out of it, but I've grown even more into it. Same with me and the Cure. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I still, and so I went to see Roger Waters uh, in, in Canada, just at the the very best concert in my life. And the second concert it, it doesn't even up to snuff for that. Uh, but Roger Waters is definitely uh, my number one musician right now. And, oh, God, what what would I cook for him? I guess I'd have to go to, like, the whole boiling crawfish thing because he yeah. probably hasn't had proper boiled crawfish unless he's been down here. So I, I don't know, but because then he would be over at my house with other people in my in my environment outside drinking beer. And I don't know, that probably the best ideal, like me outside and sh- him in shorts and me in shorts <gasps> drinking a beer with Roger Waters, just eating crawfish in a casual environment. I think that would be the best. Dear Roger Waters. Dear Roger Waters. <laughs> Make this on my bucket list, please, sir. Make this happen. Oh my gosh, are they coming to New Orleans at any point? Uh, he went to New Orleans and I missed him in New Orleans, so hopefully, he hopefully, this is in his last tour, yeah. Uh, and he comes back, but if he doesn't and and goes somewhere else, I'm going to see him there, yeah, absolutely. This won't be the last time I see him. So, let's say you have five uninterrupted minutes of self care time for Isaac. What do you do? Oh, it's not napping. Um, uh, that's an interesting question. If I had five minutes, um, blindfolded, hot tub, Pappy Van Winkle 23, Northern California, Santa Amelia. Ooh. How's that? That's real good. Yeah. And like nose deep, just like. <laughs> just emerge just, yeah. with the Pappy. Little, yeah. A little high, a little, 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 little drunk, hot tub. Blindfolded in a sound room, like I want, like, like all, all, like all, yeah, all sound, I want, yeah, 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 just, just, just a bubbling of water, no interruptions. Oh my gosh, I want this for you. I want this so badly. So, <laughs> universe, <laughs> well, universe, let's make this happen. I, I think this weekend we we have a mission for a mini version of can't can't promise I'll bring Roger Waters, but <laughs> I think you and I can we lock pinkies on this? Locking pinkies. You and I are going to have a moment of calm this weekend yes. in in your hometown. We're going to do this. And I'll turn the pool on. Oh, this is happening. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. And thank you so much to our guest today, Isaac. Of course, Toops. it's a great time. Anytime, Lady Cat. <laughs> Yay. Go to his restaurants, Toops South and Toops Meadery. 
by chasing the gator, uh, set a, a DVR alert for when he's going to be on, on your screen because you need to spend some time with this, this fantastic man. And thank you to our pro producers, Jennifer Martinick, a Alicia Cabral, and Amy Frank. Thank you to Douglas Wagner for our delightful theme song. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend, write a review, or rate us. And if there is something you would like us for us to talk about or a guest you'd like to hear more from, please let us know. You can find me on Twitter at Kitten with a Whip. Find out more about the show and catch up on all the episodes at foodandwine.com and Food and Wine's YouTube page. Thank you for listening and take good care of yourself until the next time. Bye.